We're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 19, which says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your scripture. God, we are thankful for the circumstances which it confronts. And God, though, uh, though saddened by the things we hear about how the church in Corinth was operating, Lord, we are thankful for Paul's rebuke of that circumstance and the rich understanding of faith in Jesus that it provides to us as it challenges hard circumstances and and real doubts and real fears and real um, issues of life. God, that as we look at this response to uh, immorality and disbelief, we have a firm foundation for what the basics of Christian life is. And we stand firmly upon them, not wavering to the left or to the right. God, we pray that as we look at this text today, we would be reminded of what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do in our lives. God, we are thankful for your Holy Spirit that speaks to us, that guides this time, that directs it as you see fit. And we yield to the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen.
<clears throat> so I'm calling this message back to the basics. Um, and that's basically what Paul is getting at here is, is the basics of Christian faith. And so when I'm thinking about basics, uh, I'm thinking about my job, right? And some of the things I do, what are the basics of the things I do uh, and the things that I've been involved in over the years? And, and so one of the basics of, of accounting, right? I'm an accountant by day and a preacher by night. And so um, as an accountant, uh, the basics of accounting are, are simple. If you take your assets plus your liabilities, that equals your stockholders' equity in a company. And as I say that, you guys are probably like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Stockholders' equity, what is that? You know, but that's the basics of accounting. Assets are the things you own, the things that are very real to you, like your cash or your property that you have possession of. Liabilities are the people you owe money to, right? And it might be that you took out a loan to get some property or what have you. Uh, and then equity is, is how much really your entity or your business or whatever you have is worth. And if you take what you own outright and add it to what you owe to other people, that gives you what your business and what your entity is worth, your stockholder's equity. And so for an accountant, that's the basis of like everything I do every single day is does it balance? Does that equation balance with things? Do, if I do this particular entry, does it throw off one side of the table or the other side of the table? Am I taking things into account appropriately? And so for accountants, assets plus liabilities equals stockholders' equity is the fundamental of our understanding of life and happiness. <laughs> and uh, if those things are out of whack, we're unhappy and we're looking for what is out of whack. And so we all have, though, in our circumstances and in our professions, things that are basic. You know, you can even look at sports or things that you played, right? Uh, one of the basics of, like, for instance, uh, playing baseball, right? What's one of the, what is the, the basic saying that you hear all the time when you are learning to play or playing baseball or practicing baseball? What's, what's the one phrase that comes to your mind when you think about baseball? Keep your eye on the ball, Right? What was your phrase going to be? <laughs> well, that's true also. That is also true. Uh, but generally, it's uh, keep your eye on the ball. Yeah, totally. Whether you're, whether you're in a defensive position where the ball is coming to you and you have to field the ball, or whether you're standing at the plate ready to hit the ball, uh, always the instruction is, Keep your eye on the ball. If you take your eye off of the ball, you're going to get either hit in the face or the ball is going to go between your legs uh, or, you know, you're just going to mess up the game entirely effectively. If you don't keep your eye on the ball, you're going to make mistakes in the game. And so that's a basic of, of baseball. Um, so I'll open this up real quick and feel free. If you don't want to share, that's fine. Uh, but what are some basics of the things you guys do? Are there basics that you are confronted with uh, either in hobbies or in, in your profession, that you say, this is a basic of X, Y, Z. This is a basic of teaching. Or, this is a basic of being an op- optometrist tech. I can't even say it right. What is your official title? Optomic tech. Did I do it right? Yeah. <laughs> or music, right? What are the basics of music? I'll ask you that, Sam. Listen. Okay. Okay practice you have to like no 
Yeah, yeah. And so, like, how do you how do you practice? What is the fundamentals of practice? Like, what are you practicing from? I don't read music. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, for for other people, there are some basics in music, right? There's a, like, if you're reading music, there are some basics to that. There's a treble clef and a bass clef, and there's whole notes, half notes, full notes quarter notes, eighth notes, all these different things. And those are the basics of reading music. If you don't know those things, uh, it's going to be hard to read music and say, oh, I'm going to play that song. Uh, you know, you just have to sort of hear it and then do it. Uh, and in some cases, that's how, that's how it works. And that's where practice comes in, listen and practice. Uh, and that's, that's there for sure. So everything that we do, uh, you know, even you can go look at, uh, you can look at reading, right? For my daughter, she's learning to read. And the first step in reading is what? Know your letters, right? If you don't know your letters, you can't read your letters. And then you got to know your words, put those letters together. And those letters together go into sentences and those sentences become paragraphs. And so the basic of it is, is the letters, right? And then forming those letters, those are the basics of these things. And so that's exactly what uh, Paul is getting at here in this passage. And he's getting at the basics of the Christian faith. And a lot of times when we think about Christian faith, it gets a little complicated because we think, well, we, you know, there's all these denominations and all these different churches and all this different thing. And, and it's been here for thousands of years. And, you know, some people have gone this direction. Some people have gone that direction, yada, yada, yada. And so, but here Paul is saying, listen, I don't know what you guys are doing over there in Corinth, <laughs> you know, but this is the basics of the Christian faith. And that's exactly what he lines out here. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15. And so what does he say? He says in verses, uh, he shows us in verses 1 to 11 what the basics of Christian faith, uh, what the basics are. And so he says, starts out by saying, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, in which you are being saved, and and if you hold fast by the word, uh, sorry, I I read that wrong. (laughs) Ha! Uh, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you, in fact, believed in vain. He says, starting out, he says, this is the thing that I preached to you. And this is the thing that you believed. And this thing that you believed, it saved you from your past. It's saving you from your current circumstances. And it's saving you to something in the future. This gospel that I have preached to you has provided full salvation in your life. And it is very simple. And if, uh, he says, when I preached it, you believed it. Unless, unless in fact, you believed somehow in vain and, or maybe showed that, showed that you were believing but weren't actually believing. That would be believing in vain. He says, this is the thing that I preached to you. This is the basic of Christian life. And, and he lines it out in four simple statements in verses 3 uh, to 5. And we believe that these statements are, are really a, a copying of a creed that was said throughout the churches in the Mediterranean, in, the, in really the world of church at that time, that these three statements, or these, statement, these four statements, uh, were a creed that was shared among the churches. So this is probably one of the earliest you know, creeds that we have of, okay, this is Christian faith. And so here's what Paul says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and to a number of others. The basic of Christian faith is simply that. That is it in a nutshell. That is the basic of it. That is the fundamental piece on which everything else stands. These statements. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he raised and then he appeared to people. These four things are uh, the fundamental truths or facts of the Christian faith that we stand upon, that everything that we do stands upon. Without these things, Paul is going to argue that this is all futile. If you take away one of these aspects, it all falls apart. These are the fundamentals. It, you know, in my case with accounting, if you take away the assets, you got nothing, okay? Uh, if you take away the equity, you got nothing. You know, you don't have a functioning entity. It doesn't work without these other pieces. And so the same way here, if you take away one of these things, it all falls apart. It's all broken. And so let's look at them uh, briefly. Christ died for sin according to Scripture. Paul doesn't reference a particular Scripture in, in, this, uh, in this text and uh, what we believe from that, what we understand from that, is that he's really saying that uh, Christ died for our sins according to the whole of the Old Testament. The Old Testament testifies to our need of a Savior. That there isn't just one particular text, but that the whole thing actually shows us that we are in desperate need of a Savior, of someone to stand in, the pla- in our place and save us from our sins, to die really for our sins. So it says Christ died for our sin in, in, according to the Scripture. One particular verse that speaks of this and reminds us of this fact from the Old Testament is this in Isaiah 53, 5-6. We believe this is a Messianic text, a text that is talking about the Messiah that was to come. And it says this, But He, that is the Messiah to come, uh, was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah, in reflecting on the coming Messiah, is saying that this Messiah has taken on our iniquity. He has taken on our shame. He is the one that has paid our penalty. There's a penalty that we owe to God. And we cannot pay it on our own. This Messiah has paid it for us. We see it through the whole testimony of the Old, of the Old Testament. This is, you know, and, and as a reminder uh, for the believers at this time, the only scripture they had, the only scripture to which Paul would refer is the Old Testament. For us, we have the old and new as they've been combined. And, uh, but for them, they didn't have any of these things written down in that way. They only had the Old Testament. So whenever the New Testament says, according to the Scriptures, or Scripture talks about Scripture, it's talking about the Old Testament. And so here, it's, it's doing the same thing. And we, if we reflect on the, just the simple Bible stories, we see that Christ is shown throughout the Old Testament that someone has to stand in our place to save us that we are in need of a Savior. In every, uh, every major story you look at, you see that fact on display plainly uh, if your eyes have been opened to that. And, and so, you know, even from the garden, right? 
uh, we see that the, the, the penalty that Adam and Eve deserved was death, right? What they deserved was death. God told them that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you surely will die. Um, and what happened when, when God found out that they had eaten of this tree is that not actually, he didn't actually strike them down. He actually had the authority. He could have struck it down right there and said, nope, it's done. But instead, he kills an animal, okay? It says he clothed them with skin of an animal. And so God sacrificed an animal, right? In order to provide skin to put upon them. And so he sacrificed an animal and restores them to a position of authority that isn't the same as guarding the garden that they were originally given, but is a position that they're continuing in, that God has restored them to and says, all right, you know, this is going to be really hard now, but I am going to provide for you. And I think that's demonstrated in the sacrifice that he made. He said, listen, I'm going to restore you to position. And now it's going to be hard, but he gives them a promise in that time as well. And that promise is that one day you're going to fight and toil through all of this, but one day there is one that will come who will crush the head of Satan. Satan's going to strike him on the heel, but he is going to crush the head of Satan. And that person is going to come through the seed of the woman, okay, through Eve, through mankind. And so we see that fulfillment in Jesus, that Jesus is the one that has come and destroyed sin. He is the one that has ultimately paid that penalty. Uh, We see it throughout, again, Scripture. You look at Abraham about to sacrifice his son, and what happened? He gets there, and he's about to sacrifice his son, right? He's about to lay Isaac on the table, on the chopping block. And if you just like wrap your mind around that a little bit, being a father and about to kill your son, because that's what God told you to do. uh, And God stopped him and provided another way. And we see that God is showing us that there's a sacrifice that needs to be made, but he's the one that is going to make it. He keeps showing it over and over. And if you go again to Abraham, uh, at one point, Abraham was looking out, this is before he had Isaac, He's saying, you know, how am I going to do this? I'm an old man. Like, how, how is this promise that I'm going to have this great nation going to be fulfilled? And, and the Lord takes him out to, uh, you know, to the field, and he's dreaming. And, uh, and the Lord comes to speak to him and says, uh, take some animals, split them in half, okay? Sort of a weird story, all right? Split them in half, lay them either side, either to each side, make sort of a pathway of these animals, is what he's telling Abraham to do. And... Uh, and what happens is God walks through these animals. Okay, so what in the world does that mean, right? God is a, a boiling pot that walks through these animals in, Abraham, in this story of Abraham. What he is saying in this time is that, uh, is that this promise that he's giving to Abraham depends on God. It doesn't depend on Abraham. He's going to make Abraham a blessing to the nations and ultimately, it's going to come through Jesus, uh, but God is taking the, uh, the responsibility in the covenant. Okay, this is a covenant activity that is happening. And so what would happen in the ancient Near East is that if you made a covenant with someone, you would, you would do this. You would cut an animal in half, put one on one side, one on the other. Whatever you're covenanting with, the person who walked through the pieces is the one who's ta- taking responsibility for that covenant. And so instead of having Abraham walk through the pieces and take responsibility for blessing the nations, right? God is the one who steps through the pieces. 
He says, I will fulfill this promise. And if it doesn't happen, I should be like these animals. That's what the, what the imagery is. If this doesn't happen, then I should be cut in half like these animals. And so God is taking on the responsibilities. He walks through these pieces. I will fulfill this promise to you, Abraham. Um, we see it in, in the Exodus, right? When uh, the Israelites are moaning and groaning against God over and over again. And time after time, we see not provision from the Israelites themselves for their circumstance, but rather miraculous provision from God for their circumstance. And we see Jesus in this. Again, this is God sacrificing for his people. It's the picture of Jesus sacrificing for us, dying for us. Um, at one point, there are snakes sent out in the camp uh, as, as a judgment against the people. And Moses is told by God to hold up a snake that is, is there to look at. Okay? It's a bronze snake. He holds it up. And anyone who looked at the snake wouldn't be bit by the other snakes. As long as they kept their eyes on that snake, no one else would be bit. So that snake was literally a savior for them if they kept their eyes fixed on it. And what's the picture there? The picture is God is the provider of salvation. Quit looking to your problems and these things that are going around you and disturbing you and, and tempting you and taking you away from, keep your eye on, not the ball, but the snake, you know? This is your savior. Again, the Old Testament over and over and over again, these are just a few uh, small stories, shows us that God is the one that comes and brings salvation. God is the one who comes and brings provision. God is the one that has taken responsibility for the covenants that he has made. And ultimately, God is the one that's going to pay the price. In fact, is the only one that can pay the price for us to be restored unto him. From the creation to the prophets, we see that God is the one that's going to take on our sin and pay it for us. And so Paul says the first thing, according to Scripture, is this. Christ died for our sin, according to Scripture. He has taken on our iniquity. The iniquity of us all has been laid upon him. Simply stated, the second thing is is a practical matter. He was buried. What happens when you die? You get buried. (laughs) Christ died according to the Scripture, and Christ was buried. His burial is a, a testimony of the fact that this was, he really was dead, and we really did put him into a tomb. He was buried. It's a validation of, of the prior, more important point, which is that Christ died for our sin. If you take away the fact that he was buried, who knows what happened to him, you know? We don't know. Maybe he didn't die. You know, there's all sorts of theories that could be there. But the fact was, he was buried. That is the testimony of Christians. He died on a cross. He was buried in a tomb. That's the the history of our Christian faith. The third thing is that Christ was raised on the third day according to Scripture. Um, This one is a little more interesting to to think about. Where where does according to Scripture happen for the resurrection? And the fact is there are a couple places, or there's really a lot of places uh, where we see this, but there's a couple that stand out to me as I was studying. And uh, the first one is... uh, that in, um, um, in the Judaic faith, this understanding of resurrection was pervasive, actually, and, and expected in some regard. And so uh, 
so he says, so in, in Joshua chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, it speaks of um, some kings who uh, were, um, were ousted during the conquest of the land, okay? And what happens is that these five Amorite kings that Joshua has gone to conquer in the land are hung on crosses, okay? And then they are buried under a pile of rocks. And so at first you're like, what does that mean? Like, why are, you know, what, what's going on with that? What's the significance of that? The significance of it is this, that uh, they were hung in the cross as judgment, okay? They're, they were being judged uh, for the, the immorality that they had committed. Uh, the rocks going upon them is a symbol of keeping them away from rising at the end times, okay? So there was a belief that if you threw these rocks, I mean, this is foreign to us, but to them, this is normal. You put rocks upon them, it says, you shall not even rise at the end times. There's a belief that in the end times, we all rose, whether for judgment or for not. Uh, and so they were saying that basically casting judgment upon these Amorite kings and saying that you will not rise at the end times. We are casting these rocks upon you that you will not rise. There's a belief that we, w- there is a resurrection to those uh, who are of the kingdom of God. We even see it again in Abraham's story, right? The promise to Abraham was that he would be a blessing to the nations, that his offspring would be as many as the stars, right? That was the promise that God gave to Abraham. But it's interesting that one of the things God asked Abraham to do is again, sacrifice his son. Okay, here you are uh, getting along in age. It's a a miracle that you have had this son. Now he has lived for a particular amount of time, a time enough to be talking to to you during the sacrificial process. Um, And now God has asked you to sacrifice him. Abraham must, at this point, believe in resurrection. I mean, the, the likelihood of him having another child is so slim at this point that he must have some belief that God is going to resurrect his promise. Because here you are in this old age, it's a miracle that you had this son. Now it's probably seven, uh, seven or eight years after that, and you are told to sacrifice your son. You must believe in a resurrection of this promise at least, and potentially of this person at most. We see that uh, resurrection was a, a general understanding. And in fact, we see from uh, the New Testament that this, there was a battle waging between the Pharisees and the Sadducees between whether there was a resurrection or whether there wasn't. This is important because this gets at the, really, the fact that Paul is confronting in this text that if there is no resurrection, we are sitting here in vain. The basics of the Christian faith are Christ died for sin according to scripture. He was buried, he was raised on the third day, and he appeared to many. Just as the burial corresponds to his death, his appearance corresponds to his resurrection. It testifies to the fact that it wasn't just some story that we talked about, that he was raised in some figurative manner, but actually he raised and he appeared to hundreds of individuals who testified to that fact. He appeared to many. So this is the basic of the Christian faith. He died for our sin. He was buried. He was raised and he appeared to many. And what Paul is confronting here, we see uh, at the very tip of it in verses 12 to 19, some in Corinth are saying that there is no resurrection. And Paul is going to hit at this uh, really hard throughout this text. He says, 
Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. It's simple logic. It's very simple logic. He says, if resurrection is not a fact, we say Christ has been raised. And so if resurrection isn't there, then neither is Christ being raised. Paul says, this is, this is fundamental to our Christian faith. This is one of the pillars on which the Christian faith stands is that Christ has literally raised from the dead, that he literally appeared to individuals. And if he did not do that, then we are still in our sin is what Paul will say here momentarily. Paul goes on to say this and and really just line out the number of things that must follow if Christ has not been raised. And those things are this. He says, if Christ has not been raised... Our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain, and we are found even to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. The first thing we see is that if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, and I misrepresent who God is. If Christ has not been raised, um, there is no power to what we are doing. There's no point to what we're doing. Our preaching serves no purpose because there is no message to share, really. Our preaching is in vain because it can't change someone's life if God has not conquered death and raised from the dead. The power of the resurrection is fundamental to our Christian faith. It shows us that Christ has conquered death and sin with it. If Christ has not been raised, then we preach in vain and we even misrepresent God if we say that that is what he has done. Paul goes on and says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ hasn't been raised, what we are doing is futility and vanity. And in fact, his death has not covered our sins because he has not defeated death. If Christ died on the cross and was buried but was not raised, then he did not defeat death. And death has hold him, held him and swallowed him and defeated him. And if death has defeated him, then we are still in our sin. Our faith is futile because there's nothing to have faith in. If Christ has not been raised, we are still in our sin. Paul goes even further and says, Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished because their faith was futile and and they are still in their sins and now they have perished and there's nothing more of them. And in verse 19 he says, if in Christ we hope, have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says, if we are going about this life claiming Christ as our Savior and He has not been raised, then we are to be most pitied. We don't understand this fully in our culture, this, this statement, because uh, we live in a Christian a quote, Christian nation. 
where it's nobody, nobody really cares if you're a Christian. It's fine if you're a Christian. No, no big deal. That's great. You guys have good morals and you do some good stuff and, you know, you're generally good citizens. And, and so it's, it's great that you're a Christian, you know. But for Paul, as he's talking to these Corinthians, it is, <laughs> it is the refuse of the world to be named a Christian, it is a derogatory term in parts of the region to be called a Christian. The very name came from a city that made fun of these people. As Paul is saying, if we're out here in the Mediterranean, you know, claiming that we're Christians and Christ hasn't been raised, we're to be pitied of most men because the things that we are sacrificing for this name, the things that we are laying down for this name, the things that we are doing for this name, they have no power without the resurrection. And so all this sacrifice and, and effort and, uh, and preaching and singing and praying, it's all in vain because we have no power if there is no resurrection. Paul says we are to be most pitied if, we have, if in Christ we only have hope in this life. I want to tell you why this is important, um, especially in our culture. Because in our culture, if you look at what to be Christian is, in our culture, it really is the first part of 19, that in Christ we have hope in this life only. Most of us who, in, in America, who claim to be Christians have hope in Christ for this life only. They have hope for what He can do for their family. They have hope for what He can do for their financial position. They have hope for what He can uh, do for those who are in need, or they have hope for uh, what example he can show us uh, to serve our families. They have hope for things of this life. And so many times as an American culture, we have grasped onto the things that we benefit from in this life as a result of Christ's example or whatever. Paul is saying, our hope in Christ is not about this life. Our hope in Christ is about eternity. It's about something beyond our understanding or imagination or uh, comprehension. Seventy years is a vapor in the midst of what God has purchased for us on the cross through Jesus, but only if He has raised. It's important for us to hear this because we cannot waver from what Paul has said here. Too many in Christian faith have said, oh, he, he, didn't, he didn't really raise. It's just actually a story that we you know, tell. It's an it's a example of you know, us overcoming circumstance. And he didn't really raise. You know, obviously, he didn't really raise. Paul says, if he didn't raise, <laughs> you're wasting your time. This isn't worth a lick. You might as well just try and be good on your own because, you know, that's, uh, you can do just as good a job, you know, just trying your, trying your best. But that's not what has been purchased for us on the cross. What has been purchased for us is an eternal hope. An eternal hope that brings hope into the darkest, deepest circumstances of our lives. Hope that says there is something greater than this. There's something beyond this thing that I am walking through. A hope that informs my temporary circumstance with faith. 
Christ has died for our sin. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared to many. Paul said at the beginning, I want to reflect on this as we close. Um, He says, this is the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and in which you are being saved. We talked about it some on Wednesday, and and Sam really brought out the point, uh, and just reflecting on it the rest of the week is so true. Our salvation is past, present, and future. You know, we... I think in our conversation today, you know, before just fellowshipping, uh, I hear stories among us all, really, of something that Christ has saved us from, that he is in the midst of saving us from, and that he is going to save us too. I can reflect on it even just from my personal testimony. Uh, I think my testimony, the thing that the Lord saved me from is, is people-pleasing, there's a real uh, inherent problem that I have that I struggle with trying to please people. And I, I you know, it's what I do. I, I like to please people. I do. And I struggle with that as a kid. And when I came to salvation, what I was coming to was a realization that it doesn't matter what these cool people think. It matters what God thinks of me. God saved me from people-pleasing. He did. He has saved me from it in my past. I think, it's an, I think it's actually an integral part of my coming to faith is that he saved me from pleasing people. Now, is he done saving me from that? No, he's not. He actually is continuing to save me from that. He is saving me from that right now, actually. <laughs> my desire is to please people. He has shown me that the only person I am to please or to be worried about pleasing is him, to be testifying to his truth, to be preaching his gospel, to be saying that Christ has died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised and he appeared to many. That is all the discharge he has given to me. I don't have to worry about pleasing people. I have to worry about pleasing God. He has saved me from it. He is saving me from it now and he will save me from it in the future. And in an ultimate sense, what that looks like is that there's a day in my future where I will be so enraptured with the very presence of God, I don't even care. It will will be completely lost in my memory of a time that I struggled with pleasing people because my affection will be so stirred by the presence of Jesus that I will be completely saved from it. And I would say to all of us here, that we all are experiencing that in our lives. I think that I can say confidently that Christ has come into our lives and has saved us from something. And he is continuing to save us. And he is saving us towards something. And that is his presence. You see, if Christ has not been risen, there's nothing he's saving me for. Because he's dead. If he hasn't risen, then he has perished. So what Paul is confronting here in Corinth and what he's confronting here even in our culture is this, that if we deny, if we say, 
you know, the resurrection, that's just, who could really believe that? Because miracles don't really happen. Science has proved that miracles don't happen. And so this just must be some example that we should follow, that, yeah, we can overcome difficult circumstances, blah, blah, blah. No. He appeared to many. This is a literal fact that we are testifying to. He died, he was buried, he raised and appeared to many. If he did not raise, our faith is futile. We are to be pitied of all men. All of our effort and sacrifice that we've poured into anything that has the name of Christ upon it is vanity if Christ has not been raised. But thanks be to God, he has saved me. He is saving me and he saved me towards something and that something is his very presence. And I'm so thankful that we can go with this fact that even in the darkest times that we're walking through and the circumstances that we're walking through, we know that the Lord is faithful and is with us in this circumstance, that his presence is made perfect in our suffering, that he is there with us in everything that we're facing this day. That his salvation is perfect and complete. That he is risen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power to speak so plainly and simply to us. And God, I... I'm thankful for your grace. God, I... I testify with Paul that anything of good that I can give is by your grace. Any word of instruction or word of encouragement or hope or, or of faith comes from the grace you've poured out upon me through Jesus. In myself, I, I just want to make people happy. I want to I want to please them. But you want more than that for people. You want more than that for all of us. You want us to depend upon you to find hope in you, to find strength in you, to be enraptured with your presence, to feel you in our difficulties, to feel that you are there, to know that you are there. God, we are so thankful that Christ has conquered the grave, that he was buried, but that now there is an empty tomb, that he was raised up, that he has appeared to many, that he's shown himself even to us. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.